Hello, and welcome to another episode of BachCast, the podcast that in each episode looks at a different work by the composer Johann Sebastian Bach. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the Prelude and Fugue in B minor from the first book of the Well-Tempered Clavier, BWV 869. I'm your host, John Hendren, and if you'd like more information about the podcast, or you'd like to explore other episodes, visit our website at bieberfan.org. That is B-I-B-E-R-F-A-N dot O-R-G. So when we opened the episode, you actually heard an excerpt from the harpsichordist Pierre Hantai, and that was an excerpt of the fugue from BWV 869. And I guess we should first preface things by by introducing the collection uh, from which this example comes. Um, Bach took uh, basically the chore uh, upon himself to compose a set of preludes and fugues for the keyboard and he did so in a very uh, interesting way and it makes us think that maybe he was trying to prove something in in his project Um, there are basically 12 keys on a keyboard Uh, there are 12 keys in the western music system when i say keys i'm really talking about the notes if you actually look at a keyboard And let's say we started at middle C and went up, there would be uh, white notes and black notes. The the black notes we call sharps and flats, and the white notes just get their own letter, kind of, right? So C, D, E, F, G, A, B, and C again. The musical alphabet goes from A uh, to G, and does that make sense? A to G. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H. H? Yes. Well, that's the confusing thing when you look at box music because he did use H. And H was a, um, in the German, referred to the key of B, whereas B, the, the letter B, would refer to B flat. And so you sometimes uh, will see things written about the H note in music because of Bach's name, because Bach in German could actually spell out, uh, could be spelled out with letters that appear in music, B flat, A, C, and H. H would be B natural. But for our purposes, we'll just talk about the 12, 12 tones. And if you were to play those on a piano, you get a chromatic scale. Well, what Bach went about doing is composing a prelude, which was kind of an open 
uh, form. He used different forms, in fact, for preludes. Um, it was an introduction, if you will. And then a fugue, uh, a more learned, um, kind of uh, old-fashioned, if you will, format for the piano. And that's where Bach's skill really lied in his writing counterpoint. And so what he wrote for the keyboard were these fugues, uh, typically in three or four voices. Um, and they would take a theme based on the same key that the prelude appeared in. So for the first prelude and fugue, he gives it, that, gives it to us in the key of C major. And you've probably heard that one before. It's a pretty common one if you... If you happen to own a collection of the Well-Tempered Clavier, and you always start at the beginning, it's going to be the most familiar one. And then he traverses all the major and minor keys. So if you know there are 12 notes, major, minor are two different modes, um, he basically doubles things up. So you get the C major, the C minor, the C sharp major, the C sharp minor, the D major, the D, D minor. And he basically traverses all the keys. And there's something very interesting about that because on a modern piano with the tuning system that we now use called equal temperament, basically there isn't a lot of flavor between different keys. Now some pianists will say, no, I still think there are flavors to things. Uh, and there's certainly something to be said about how a key will feel in your hand as you're playing it. But for the most part, it really shouldn't have a specific flavor, except where on the keyboard it starts and ends. So if we were to transpose something, let's say at the octave, it would be much higher. If we go down an octave, it would be an octave lower. And we would definitely hear the difference between the high and the low. But if you were to take a, a piece that was written for the key of E major and, and then decide to transpose it down to C major, you, you probably wouldn't detect a huge difference unless you have perfect pitch. Uh, which is your ability to recognize a key by name just by hearing it. And that's something that people develop usually pretty early in their life as a special skill. And it's it's somewhat difficult to try to learn. Um, but I digress here. Bach wrote the set of preludes and fugues. So this is the last one, the B minor. And it happens to be one of my favorites. And that's why I decided to, to share it with this episode. And the example that you just heard previous to me talking was by Glenn Gould. And Glenn Gould, of course, was the Canadian pianist who recorded a lot of Bach's keyboard works, including the Well-Tempered Clavier. And he did so in a kind of an interesting way. He's playing with a lot of space in the left hand. Boom, 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 boom. Kind of a walking bass, if you will. And the right hand just seems to be going nicely along. It sounds great. And I'll tell you why I don't like it. And I'll tell you why I do like it in just a few moments. But after Bach completed this, some years pass, and he sets about doing the task again and writes a book two of the Well-Tempered Clavier. That's why you'll hear book one, book two. And you won't see it written as the 24. You typically see it abbreviated as, oh, the Bach's 48, because he does it twice. Now, why would Bach write in all these different keys? Well, there's something to be said about the art of keyboard playing and being able to actually play in all those keys. Because uh, any pianist who's been at it for a while will tell you that, you know, writing, uh, excuse me, playing in certain keys can be a lot easier than others, right? So playing in the key of C major is pretty easy. If you open up a beginning uh, 
piano book, you'll see easy keys. And then when you get into difficult literature, you'll see a composer who decides, I'm going to play, I'm going to compose in a key of C sharp minor. And just because of what your fingers have to do on the keyboard with all those black notes and the white notes together, it can make it a challenge. And so maybe Bach was writing something to challenge our ability to play in all those different keys. And that's, that's likely there's something to be said for that theory. The other is the tuning system that Bach may have used so that a single instrument could play all of these kind of like an equal temperament. And there is much debate whether Bach embraced equal temperament or that he did not embrace equal temperament and use something other than equal, and which would may have given some of these preludes and fugues a very unique sound because the tuning of the instrument um, would have had a flavor, if you will. That's, that's the way I like to refer to it. When you hear a, uh, a non-equal tempered instrument being played, a keyboard instrument, which may be a harpsichord or an organ, typically these will be Baroque instruments or copies, they'll have a flavor to them because of the mistunings or correct tunings within the key. And people always ask me, you know, I've heard about this tuning business, why? Why are things out of tune? Why was this such a big deal? Well, the tuning system that was employed in Baroque times was not standardized because there were many theories about how to actually come up with tunings. If you imagine today all the equipment we have, such as a cell phone that could probably tell you the frequency of a tone that we could hear, they didn't have that technology. And so they were using mathematical models that made perfect sense. Except in real life, they didn't make acoustic physical sense. And so the theory didn't quite fit the real acoustics of instruments. And then you had some numbers that were off. And so when you tune uh, a harpsichord, let's say, and you're going to be playing French Baroque music, you sometimes will, many times in fact, will see performers adopt a tuning system that had been used there. You'll see, hear names like Kernberger, who was a, a guy who came up with a tuning system. Or you might hear uh, a mean tone. And these are just different theoretical models on how to tune an instrument. And some are more appropriate for traversing keys, and some are more appropriate for staying within a key. There is also uh, some thought that maybe Bach is expecting us to retune after each one, which would be uh, quite a chore that you might call it the, uh, the harpsichord tuners uh, collection or something. And I really don't think that is probably the case. Uh, my suspicion is that Bach probably did choose a tuning system that lent some of these pieces a unique sound because of the key that he had chosen. And there is some evidence that some of these might have been arrangements as well that may have, may have been originally written for another key. So that might take some holes at, at my theory that he was trying to help us just be able to play different keys. Well, let's get to this, this prelude and fugue. The opening is basically written in a three-part structure a bass with two treble instruments. If you've read my blog, you may have noticed that I've written a couple times about this uh, set just because I think it's so extraordinary. And I may have uh, already talked about the structure here, uh, the way Bach has put things together, at least in the vertical way. We know that uh, a common form or a common combination of instrumentation in Baroque times would have been a trio sonata. That is a bass line, the basso continuo, with two different melody instruments on top. Now, 
we've been listening uh, to the collection, which we have one more episode to finish that uh, series out, on the sonatas for harpsichord or keyboard, if you will, and violin. And Bach many times adopts that trio structure, even though he's talking about two instruments. And the way that happens is the left hand, the bottom notes on the, on the keyboard, play the bass. One of the melody instruments is the right hand of the keyboard, and the second melody instrument, of course, is the violin. And we get this trio texture. Well, Bach is doing the same thing here. We have two voices in the, in the right hand that are basically, basically responsible for the melody or the, the, what our ear lends itself to. And there's all this interchange of suspensions and, and different techniques where basically Bach is having notes hold over as the bass line moves in kind of a regular rhythm. The bass line just keeps going and doing its thing. Now, what I really liked about Glenn Gould's interpretation is how he broke up the bass. If you think about what it would sound like on Baroque instruments, and of course, Gould is playing a piano, modern piano, for which we're pretty sure Bach did not intend this for, although we don't know that if Bach would have had a, any issues with us doing that. But one of Glenn Gould's uh, interpretation, interpretive uh, devices was to sometimes imitate the sound of the harpsichord. And so that broken kind of sound is not uncommon among some pianists, especially of his generation, who are trying to emulate the sound. Because around his time, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, basically historical performance was coming to be. And so there's these ideas in the culture of performance that, hey, there's these instruments. And and he actually uh, uh, crosses over and he plays on the, he makes a couple records on the organ. He makes some recordings on the harpsichord and he also makes recordings on, which was very experimental and probably most folks would say was a, uh, a sham. It didn't quite work out. But he would uh, alter a piano uh, with uh, different kinds of hammers so that it sounded more like a, a prepared or a, a, a toy piano, if you will, that would have a very short articulation like a harpsichord. And so he was aware of the sound world of Bach, but he uh, he was giving a nod to it in, in at least some of the performances here. And for me, it works very well. If we were to think of the bass line being performed by two instruments, let's say a cello and the harpsichord, the cellist would probably not be playing this legato. Boom, 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 boom. Likely because in Baroque music, that just wasn't the style. You were trying to match articulation. And so uh, when a cello and a harpsichord play together, they kind of had to play together with the style. And the harpsichord, of course, is the, is the instrument that limits us a little bit in articulation by having a short articulation because the note decays very quickly. So let's listen to that again. I know it's been some time I've been talking, and you're like, "What's the, remind me of what it sounds like again, John. So this is the opening of the prelude in B minor. The BWV numbers, by the way, hold across are the prelude and the fugue, so it's the same number, 869. And this time we're going to listen to a different performance, and I want you to listen again to that bass line and listen for two upper voices.
despite those two performances being a similar tempo, I much preferred the articulation of the first one by Glenn Gould. The second one was a release just this past year by Kimiko Ishizaka, who has recorded this as kind of an open source project. She, previous to this, has recorded the Goldberg Variations, and uh, I, I, I like this one. I heard it, so I purchased it. Uh, she released book one so far, and she has plans to release book two. And she is a pianist and record on the piano. So that gave us another little taste. And the thing, again, that I think was easy for you to hear more than likely was the bass line. But what about the upper, the upper voices? I said two voices. But you didn't really hear them at the same time so much. It was kind of a back and forth of a tick-tock. Boom, 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 boom. Went back and forth. And that's because one note's holding over while the other one resolves, and another one comes and the other one resolves. Uh, it would be helpful in this case to kind of take a look at the score. Um, I've had some issues linking to scores, and I want to tell you why I'm, I'm not going to be linking to this in the, in the notes. But I will certainly let you know a great resource. When I look for, for scores, uh, lots of box music is available as scores online, so uh, you don't have to go out and purchase it. However, the, uh, there are databases where these are available, and a very popular piece like this would be available. I simply search score and do the BWV number, 869, uh, put the, B, the letters BWV in there, and you'll usually find a score. Uh, one of my sources for scores is recently, they really don't like us uh, linking to where the score sits on a server, and so I don't want to uh, violate uh, their wishes. The second thing about that is they really want visitors to see the site and to go through and peruse uh, because they are now asking for money, um, and I want to help support them in that, that cause. So uh, I'm going to have you search for a score for this, but it should be readily available. And if you happen to be a pianist, and uh, this would be a, a really nice collection for you to purchase if you wanted a paper copy uh, to perform from as well. Um, so BWV 869, the prelude, and what I don't like about either one of these is the speed. And I've written about this, but I will tell you in this episode, I really think there's something to be said when this one gets slowed down. Uh, usually, as you've come to know me probably, I'm kind of the speed freak. You speed it up, I like it. In this case, I want you to slow it down. I really see this as a walking bass, not a running bass, not a jogging bass, but a boom, 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 boom. Uh, I've performed it this way in uh, as a trio with, with two other instruments. I really like it. And there's a performance that I, I will get to that I hope illustrates to you what I think is so cool about this when we slow it down. So with that said... Uh, I want to give you one other performance that is, again, not my favorite, but it's one I think is worth hearing. And uh, the thing I'll say about this collection uh, is that I don't necessarily like all the performances. There's some that, to me, are really sharp. There's some that are kind of fuzzy, if you will. And in this one, I, I like what this performer does with the work. They are willing to slow things down, speed things up. They're willing to change shade dynamics. Not to a gross degree where it's like, oh my gosh, we just slowed down 20 beats per second, minute. No, it's not, it's not 
grossly done, but it's subtle enough, but it seems to be uh, very sympathetic to the music and what's going on in the music. Uh, and not a lot of performers do that. They, in Bach, it's kind of a thing where you start and stop, start and stop at the same tempo. You're not supposed to vary it so much, so to speak. Uh, and I really appreciate a performer who says, hey, this is the way I feel it. This is the way I'm going to do it. So here we go with another example of the opening prelude from B2V 869. So the pianist here is Edward Aldwell, and if you have been a music student, you may have uh, encountered one of his textbooks. Uh, he co-wrote a very famous uh, music theory textbook. That's how I came to know him. Um, I looked him up. I found his recordings of the Well-Tempered Clavier, and, and then a few years ago, I looked him up again to learn more about him, to see if he was still a professor or what he was up to. And... Fortunately, the news was that he was uh, he was killed in a in a car crash and uh, is no longer with us. So uh, he is no longer recording, obviously. But he did get this recording out in 2005 of the first book of the Well Tempered Clavier, and the second is also available if you like that. One of the things that you're going to notice about his approach here is he's really, I think, trying to differentiate between the two voices using. Uh, volume, which is difficult. If, if you think of a pianist, I'm playing one hand, two parts, and I'm trying to differentiate the two with, with volume. The other thing you'll notice as you live, you can hear this in the background clearly enough, is that the music repeats. So Bach is writing this prelude in a binary form. Um, there's part A and part B, and each one has a repeat sign. And that brings up some interesting things because in Baroque music, typically when you got a repeat, especially in dances, um, there was this sort of expectation that maybe the second time around, you just don't play it as it's written, but you in, it invites you to some uh, interpretation uh, to change things up. See what you can improvise. See, see if you want to add ornamentation. See if you can make it your own. Um, and that is something that's sort of uh, you'll see a lot of performers doing Baroque music, and I, I often wonder, because I can't cite the source where that becomes the sort of uh, the rule, right? So many performers who perform Baroque music in a historical context are going back to treatises and things that people wrote with indications of how to do that. And I have several of those books, um, and I, I just don't have the recollection of where on repeats we're supposed to change things. I like it, and so I, uh, I often notice it as I listen, and it's something that makes sense to me. But I can't point to the person who said, hey, that's a good idea. What we do know is that just because one person said something was a good idea didn't mean that everybody did it everywhere. Some things, sometimes these were regional, uh, regional ideas or ideas that came into fashion very quickly and left fashion very quickly. So there's no, there are no codified 
definite rules when it comes to historical interpretation. And of course, we're listening to a pianist, so uh, my thoughts are if you're going to change the instrument, basically anything goes. So what really sets this one apart for me um, in terms of interpretation is, is just a different approach to this. And there are probably two examples in all of Bach that I can think of performances that uh, somebody performs it in such a way that it clicks in my head like, oh my gosh, this is the way to perform it. Th they've uncovered the, ma the magic secret or the interpreta interpretive secret that unlocked the, the beauty of this piece by Bach. It's that one thing. And the first example would be Musica Antigua Colon's performance of Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 6 in the opening movement. Uh, Brandon, uh, that concerto especially to me always felt like you had this, these very long phrases. just didn't make sense at the tempo most folks chose. And here was uh, Reinhard Goebel and his ensemble who basically played at twice the speed. And if you just listen to the rhythm and how fast the harmony changes, it just made sense to me. Like, of course, that has to be the tempo that works. Um, and in this case, I heard this, uh, I actually in, uh, encountered this recording first from a public library. Uh, in a previous life, I lived in Ohio, and I uh, borrowed this from the Westlake um, Public Library in Westlake, Ohio, which is a suburb of Cleveland. And there they had this recording that was um, on the Phillips label. I'd never heard of the performer before, but I saw it was Bach, and I brought it home. And I made copies of this uh, recording on tape. I would listen to it in the car. I loved it. There was only one downside. It was recorded around the same time I was born, and so it has a lot of tape hiss in it. Uh, it the performer is Friedrich Gulda, who is probably best known for his interpretations of Mozart, but also some jazz music. And he recorded this uh, collection by Bach in a very unique way. Uh, he basically treats each prelude and fugue as its own little world and comes up with a different, very strong interpretive signature, I'd call it, for each one. So there's, as you listen to the collection, it's not like, oh, you know, I forget which one I'm on. No, you're going to know which one you're on because he basically treats each one very differently, which is not to say maybe it's Bach authentic. I don't know. Um, but he plays a very dry sounding piano. I like the approach. And for this prelude and fugue pair, especially, it makes so much sense to me. Now, what we're going to be listening to is the end of the first, and then we're going to hear the repeat. And in the repeat, he peppers it with ornamentation, which to me is absolutely splendid because it just, it, it, it's awesome. So here is Friedrich Gulda on the Prelude BWV 869.
So he's gearing up to get near the end of one of those sections before he repeats, where he comes back a second time and adds a lot of ornamentation. Um, you'll notice that he adopts the very short left hand bass line like Glenn Gould, um, but he slows down the tempo a considerable amount. The reason why I think this works is the speed at which the harmonies are changing when you look vertically in this piece. And to me, the harmonies just, the, the speed at which they're happening is much better when we slow it down. It just seems more natural and it gives us the ability to really listen and kind of just take in the beauty of those harmonies without rushing through it. To me, that is, is it's titillating. Those little, da -da -da, da -da -da. those little ornaments that he adds gives us the ability to kind of follow. The top voice does more of it, but you'll hear the kind of little echo. You'll hear it in the top part, then you'll hear it in the bottom part. Uh, frankly, after I've heard this performance, anyone that I've listened to after has sort of been ruined. Uh, this piece did it for me as saying, hey, there's this is... This is top shelf stuff. It just made sense to me. Does not doesn't mean it'll make sense to you. You may say, well, my gosh, I'm used to hearing this so fast. This slows it down. I don't, I don't like it at all. And I don't like, who is this guy who thinks he can go in there and, and start messing around with box music like that? But again, you got to understand the structure. It's a binary structure. It gets repeated. And in the second times where he's peppering this with some of his own um, interpretive flair, if you will. Now, the, the fugue that we opened this podcast with, I gave you a little taste of what it sounded like on the harpsichord. Um, Pierre Hantai, who's one of my uh, more favorite harpsichordists, has recorded the book one. Uh, as far as I know, book two has not come out yet by him. And I also own uh, the collection uh, performed by Kenneth Gilbert. Kenneth Gilbert was a, a Canadian uh, harpsichordist did a number of recordings in the 80s for DG Archive, uh, was sort of the, uh, the, the other harpsichordist other than Trevor Pinnock, who was um, well recorded on that label in the 80s. And his interpretation is done on, I believe, a, 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 a two-manual, a two-keyboard French instrument. And 
it's not my favorite recording. It's very clean. It uh, it really follows the score well, and it doesn't go overboard. Um, and, you know, I like a little flair. So it's one I will go to as a reference, but typically I'm looking for something a little, a little more daring, if you will. Um, and Pierre Hantai, if you want a good harpsichord version, I would highly recommend his uh, book one recording that was done on the Mirare label. And he does, he plays a little bit of um, what Friedrich Gulda was doing. He, uh, he surprises us in a few of them by um, choosing some tempi and things that we probably weren't expecting or aren't typical. And he has a very good sounding instrument. Pierre Hentai has put out a number of recordings and some of those have been, the later ones have been on this Murari label. And he's just, he did three Scarlatti albums and then I think this one came out. And he was just choosing some really good sounding harpsichords, uh, harpsichords the instruments themselves. And they weren't the typical sound. And I, I, one of the reasons I really appreciate the, the recording is for the flavor of that instrument. And so that's one I would recommend. I'm going to finish with letting you listen to a little bit of Friedrich Gould again on the piano with the fugue. I want to talk about how he interprets this one. So we have some repetition again in this one. Bach is following a similar model and to me this is a this is a long fugue subject. It's not a happy thing. It's kind of medita meditative. Meditative. You will meditate perhaps to this. Um, you don't have to but to me it kind of lends itself to thinking deep thoughts. Um, and it's kind of a fun theme. It's not, you know, Bach writes the art of fugue and comes up with a theme, then it's pretty simple. This one is a complex theme. It's long, which makes one of the reasons it makes it complex. And because it's long, you might say, well, hey, speed it up a little bit. And Friedrich Gulda doesn't do that. He's, he's, you know, again, chosen the slow road here. And so this one for me is a little harder to get through at the tempo that's chosen. But I think the reward is if that you can really shut off everything in your brain. Don't try to read a book when you listen to this. Don't try to watch TV. Don't try to, you know, what I sometimes silly do is try to watch YouTube videos, the volume turned off, and try to listen to music at the same time. That doesn't work. This demands your full attention. And the reward is by the time you get to the end, it's, it's like the taste of water after you've come off the desert so thirsty you know you finally like oh gosh i'm thirsty you know 10 minutes later you're still thirsty yeah but now finally at the end when it comes you get you get the resolution the last chord and it's like the most refreshing delicious glass of water you've ever had so it does there is a little bit of an endurance required for you as the listener but it's well worth just shutting everything off off in your brain and just concentrating with 100% concentration on this because I think it's well worth it. Um, he adopts this thing where it starts off again very kind of quiet and he basically treats the piece like a giant crescendo. So when we get to the end, it's intense. Um, so I don't know how you'd write that in the score except to say beginning, end, big crescendo. So I'm going to let you listen to a little bit of the beginning and then I will skip ahead to the end so you can hear the contrast, the big kind of, if you will, um, big interpretive device that Gulda is using in the performance of the B minor fugue from Bach's first book 
of the well-tempered clavier. So, what'd you think? Um, I stopped it before it really got to the the ultimate climax there because, frankly, I want you to go seek this recording out and uh, purchase it like I did because it's the one I keep going back to. When when I hear a performance that sounds too bland, I pull up Friedrich Gould and I'm like, yeah, he was he was digging in there for the gold and and usually finds it. Uh, and that's not to mean that there's one way to perform everything. We've had this conversation before. And I'm not convinced that um, his tempo for the, the second, the fugue, is is spot on or is the, the, the most perfect tempo I might have cho chosen if I had a say in the matter. But um, I'm going to play, as we go out, um, the Gould version, which to me, in retrospect, if you listen to enough of that, almost sounds like he's throwing it away. It sounds like um, it's silly, if you will, uh, in comparison, because there's just taking the tempo down there and taking your time to savor what Bach has put together uh, is really um, kind of making a profound statement out of it. Uh, so he records at about 8 minutes and 43 seconds, I think, if I remember correctly, uh, for that movement. Just as a point of comparison, Edward Aldwell, who I mentioned earlier and gave you a sample from, he takes it out beyond 10 minutes. And so that's not the slowest it's been taken at. Um, and just as a comparison here, Glenn Gould. Um, he does it in 3 minutes and 45 seconds. Hmm. 
there's a part of this, if I remember correctly, has a repeat, and I think he probably just didn't repeat it. So this is Glenn Gould. We'll end. Not my favorite performance, but I always find illuminating things about listening to Glenn Gould, and so I'm not putting him down. I'm just saying, you know what, for this one, he wasn't my favorite. Thank you for listening. My name again is John Hendren, and you've been listening to an episode of BachCast featuring Bach's Prelude and Fugue in B minor, B to V 869.